pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We have so much to celebrate here today. And we ask, Lord, as your word is brought forth, that you would take our minds and think through them, take my lips and speak through them, take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with the reality of your love for us in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, your delegate Bob Drusendahl and I are freshly back from three days with the Great Lakes Diocese in Livonia, Michigan. At his church, Anglican, we met with 200 of our best friends around the diocese. As we are now calling no longer a diocesan synod, we call it the Diocesan Mission Conference. And after 30 years of diocesan conventions, I say amen to that because it was more about just practically being a people of blessing to our community in word and deed. It was great, great time, and we'll be talking about that a lot as we go into 2023. But it's our number one priority as a diocese and the number one priority as a church to reach out to people with the love of Jesus Christ, because he changes lives today as much as he did in the first century. Because much like Nehemiah's day, we're rebuilding the walls, are we not? You know, and so we're looking forward to seeing what the Lord will do with us, not only physically with a building, but also spiritually in our lives. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 10. You can find it on your device, on your phone, or in the back of your bulletin. Nehemiah is a leading governor in this day. His parents had been taken away as captives from Jerusalem. He's been raised in Persia, you know, Assyria. It was the largest empire in the known world at the time. And he had a great deal. He worked his way up to be the cupbearer to the king. You know what the cupbearer is, right? You taste it before the king does, and if it's got poison in it, you're gone. So that cupbearer had to be trusted by the king. It was a good position, quite frankly. And so he was left with a burden on his heart. He was a Jew. He wasn't Persian. He worshipped the one true God. And God gave him a burden. Because Jerusalem is in absolute rubble. And God called Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. The wall had been torn down. The temple had been torn down. It's over. It hadn't been rebuilt for 140 years at this time. And so the, that's what he did. He took a bunch of people, went back to Jerusalem, and it was a monumental task. The wall was 15 feet high. That's Progressive Fields Outfield Wall, by the way. Okay? 15 feet high, three and a half feet thick, a mile and a half long. And miraculously, he was a phenomenal organizer. He said, you live in this section of the city, you build that section of the wall. And all around the city, they did so. And in 52 days, they rebuilt the wall under the wonderful sovereignty and providence of God. But Nehemiah knew that the work wasn't done. Because there were some issues that was going on in the nation of Israel that weren't good at all. And he got back and he noticed this. So in chapter 8, 
he had the Levites read the law. And I didn't ask Beth, being her first time as a lector among us, to read the names. I, I challenge you, read the names of Nehemiah 8 and see if you get all of them right. You know, no way. <laughs> They're quite unpronounceable. But the reality is, the people came under conviction. They realized they weren't living unto the Lord. And therefore, in chapters 9 and chapter 10, after continuing to read the word, Nehemiah brings to their attention three areas of compromise. As stewards of the Lord, we need to look at our lives as well as we rebuild the wall, both figuratively and spiritually in our lives. The three compromises that Israel was doing, and also we tend to do as well. Three faith commitments. The commitment of family, the commitment of worship, and the commitment of finances. And this is also All Saints Sunday, where we're also baptizing Elizabeth. And so we're calling not only Elizabeth to a pattern of discipleship, Amanda. <laughs> Forgive me, sweetheart. All right. Um, we're not only baptizing Amanda, and the parents and godparents are making sincere promises. So are we in our discipleship as we reignite our covenant with the Lord. So let's look at these commitments. Family, all right, worship, and uh, finances. First, family. So as a people, they're compromising the state of their family. How are they doing that? Well, they were giving their sons and daughters to the nations around them for marriage. Well, you think, well, that's not that bad a thing. Yeah, it was a problem because it was confusing the faith. They didn't share the same values. They didn't share the same worship. They had a whole, whole different worldview. And therefore, they were raising children who had mixed alliances. They were confused about who God is. They were polluting the worship of God, and they mixed it with paganism. Time out. Throughout the Word of God, God's people have always been called to be and commanded in the words of Paul, to be equally yoked. Now, if you're currently in a marriage with a non-believer, Paul makes it real clear in 1 Corinthians 7, to both men and women, you stay in that marriage. I want to say that right up front. Betraying your transformed life perhaps will bring them to faith in Christ. But in Paul's second letter, he continues this conversation, chapter 6, verse 4. Paul speaks to the singles in Corinth, saying that they should not be unequally yoked. A yoke was a piece of wood put on between two oxen to plow the field. And if the oxen worked together, the plowman had no problem plowing a straight row. If they didn't work together, the field was an absolute mess. And Paul's using that image to an agrarian society, and everybody understood it. I want our young people to hear this real clearly, in love. If you profess to be a Christian, right now, once for all, decide that you also will marry a person of like-minded faith that they're on the same place as you spiritually. Because here's what I hear when people want to come to me to get married. The young women. 
oh, Gene, he's, he's got such potential, you know. He's, he's got a good degree. He's got a great job. He's so handsome. He's got it all together. He's from a good family. I say, but he doesn't know Christ. And 10 years from now, unequally yoked, it's going to be a mess. You'll be pulling one way, and he'll be pulling another. The guys take it from another standpoint. Why do you want to marry her? She's hot. I say, yeah, right, so is hell, all right? <laughs> and your life is going to be a living hell 10 years from now with children as you pull in different directions. Okay, this is what Nehemiah is trying to get them to see. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land to take their daughters for our sons. A common faith, a common worldview, a common purpose, a common mission as a family. They are compromising it. God's people are called to be a blessing to the world. You can't be a blessing if you're going, pulling in different directions. And Nehemiah wants to make sure they go that way. Secondly, they were compromising in their worship. The Lord had established the Sabbath as a pattern in creation. Now, people hear this, the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, that the Lord created the world in six days and then he rested and they think that he needed a five-hour energy to get up Sunday morning to go back to work. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He doesn't get tired, my friends. What God is doing is communicating to us the need of a rhythm of life, of rest, the Sabbath, the Lord's day. Jesus says in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man, meaning him, he is Lord of the Sabbath. We cease from our work, that which we have vocation. We get a vacation day every Sunday to gather together, to hear the word, to receive from the table, not on my great performance as a follower of Christ, but because his performance on the cross for me. And then we're sent out into the world this week to be a blessing wherever we're found in deed and in word. So this afternoon, take a nap. Take a rest. Uh, take a walk. Um, I just got back. I work on Sundays, okay? So I, I kind of Sabbath with you, but I also got this pile of leaves. The wind yesterday? I mean, my gosh, it blew up. I got leaves stacked up in my backyard this high. My dog couldn't get out the back door this morning, you know. But it's, I enjoy it. It's, it's kind of reinvigorating for me to put the Husqvarna backpack blower on, you know. <laughs> it's awesome. But my friends, that's what we do. We take a time out and we rest in the Lord. Because what they were doing and what our culture does is it confuses the sacred with the secular. And we substitute the secular with the sacred, right? And we all struggle with this in one sense or another. I want to encourage you. And, you know, technology hasn't helped. You know, one thing, you know, our smartphones have done is that we're never able to unplug. So when you get to bed at night, I encourage you, unless your job demands it of some kind, you're a doctor, you need to be on call, maybe you have an on-call profession, 
put that phone in the other room. I don't put the phone under my room because I'm available to you 24-7. If you call me at 3 o'clock in the morning, I will pick up because I'm called to be your shepherd. I'm available. But the reality is they haven't helped and we don't unplug. So I want to encourage you in that. And what I see here with us is barriers in our culture, our, our, our busyness. I've had people say to me, hey, I missed you on Sunday. Yeah, I had to shop for groceries. You couldn't find any other time during the week to shop for groceries? Maybe all these are really just, you need to trust the Lord. Give him the first fruit of Sunday and watch what the Lord does in providing for you. Travel sports. My boys did travel sports. I know parents what this is like when they're on a travel team. They played travel hockey in Pittsburgh, and they played here in Avon Lake. I've said this story many times. They, my boys would come up, 8 o'clock service, drop their hockey bags, boom, and the Avon Lake Shoreman bus would pick them up after the service on the way to the rink where the puck would drop 11 o'clock in the morning. But if it was before 11, they weren't there. They'd get there. But this is the first thing, that we need to gather together as your people. And it all stems from allowing the secular to creep into the sacred. Friends, commit to the Lord first in all things. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day refusing to drink the Kool-Aid of the culture, they said, that's it. No more business. We're going to rest on this day. It's a vacation day. Enjoy it. We get 52 of them a year. You know? Get off the treadmill of the nonstop urgency of our culture. Jesus is Lord of our Sundays, too. The third thing they were compromised were in their finances. Verse 35 through 39 is all about that point where the Lord has two terms which you might be confused with. It's the word first fruit and the word tithe. What do those mean? First fruit in an agrarian society, you took all of your crops, you took a tenth of those crops, and you gave them to the temple. You gave them to the synagogue. First, some of them were sacrificial. Other them's just, that's how the Levites ate. That's how the priests ate, is God's people giving. That's how I eat, you know. Um, secondly, you have the word tithe. That's your vocation. And in the Old Testament, that was the standard. That a tenth of my gross income was given to the Lord for the purpose, for his glory in the church. It's an acknowledgement that God owns everything in my bank account. But in the New Testament, it's not required. It's a standard by all means, but for some people, some people, you might do your budget this week as we approach Stewardship Sunday next week and see, you know, 10%. I can't do this year. I know there's inflation. I buy eggs. I know. I'm with you. But the reality is, what's my gross income? Set the tithe first. And some people will come to that standard and say, I can't do that. Well, take a step from what you're giving this year, perhaps. 1%. Trust the Lord in that. 
Then there's some people who will do their budgets this week and say they're not even hardly breathing. 10%, no big deal to them. Well, then the Lord calls them to give sacrificially too. We all called to give sacrificially, but maybe give 15, 20 to the Lord first. You know, you hear this discussion, and every time I do this discussion with a new believer, I have people say, you got to be kidding me, Gene, 10%? Is that what I'm supposed to aim to? I said, you aim for it, but it's, but it's there. But you do realize that Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined because he knew it was the thermometer of the human heart for him. It reveals our priorities. You know, guys, if we were to say to our wives, sweetheart, you're number one in my life. I love you. And she looks at you and says, thank you, honey. I love you, too. Can we go to dinner? And you said, yes, sweetheart, if Bob doesn't call me to go play golf or Joe doesn't call me because he's got Browns tickets for Monday night and, and Charlie's got uh, a board game night that I really want to attend and you just keep giving excuses about why you don't want to go to dinner. Would she think she's a priority? No, absolutely not. This week, we're asking every Christchurch member to set aside some time to craft their budget for 2023. And like verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Do you give more money to the United Way than you do to Christ Church? What is your budget? It's between you and the Lord. I, I don't ever see people's pledges. But the reality, we know that if every family pledged, you received a letter this week. We're trying to be clearly communicative. Because really our budget's 510000 for this year. We're hoping, and it's very typical, as the, as the finance team in the vestry crafts the budget, Asking the Lord the first question in the summer, Lord, what are you calling us to? Then we craft the budget. It's not uncommon for us to have a $30,000 deficit. Then we go through stewardship, and guess what happens? That deficit shrinks. Because it's of the Lord, the money comes in. The pledges come in. But we know that if every family unit, giving unit, tithe, and we have 68 pledge units and 13 in addition who don't pledge, but they give regularly. Thank you for supporting us and the gospel witness here. But we know if every family unit did, there'd be no problem for a budget at all. And so, my friends, it's that time of year where we recalibrate, and it seems radical. But the question we all have to ask ourselves, am I giving the Lord my first fruits or merely a tip? So I encourage you to do a budget as a family this week. If you're a teenager, one of the great blessings of my teenage years when John Howe gave these sermons around this time every year, I earned $10 in 1979 a week from my folks doing chores around the house, mowing the lawn, raking the leaves and all that stuff. We didn't have backpack blowers back then. In my day, we had to walk up hill school twice, right? <laughs> I know, I know. It was a blessing. I could go, I'd go to a movie on 10 bucks and, and a date, go to dinner. Ten, one dollar went in the plate every week. 
what a great time to establish giving to the Lord first as a young person. You can make a pledge. We encourage you to do so. Malachi says, put me to the test and see if I will not pour out a blessing upon you. A blessing isn't financial and necessary. Blessings in any way the Lord so chooses. And for some, as you do that budget, it might be all you can do is, is a modest increase of 1%. Others, 5, 7, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. I got a friend at home at Truro Anglican. He gives 50% of his gross. He's a person of means, I admit. But he gives 50%. And he's joyful to do it. Because it's not his, it's the Lord's. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Why do we talk about this? Whether it be our our worship, or whether our family, or our financing. Why? Because the Lord gave Jesus Christ himself for us. He was totally dependent on his Father, and he lived perfectly unto the Father. He didn't have a home. He lived perfectly unto the Father, sinless, and then in our place died the death that we deserved so that we can live in his presence forever. Therefore, we live unto him in every aspect of our lives. John Wesley said, when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you not as an owner, but as a steward. May our lives reflect his stewardship, not mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day and grateful for this time that we have just to see how we might live into our covenant. And as we all bring forth Amanda forward this morning under your biblical covenant to live unto you, we pray that it be reflected in our families, in our worship, and in our finances so that there be revival like it was in Nehemiah's day. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.